Welcome, everyone. Thanks for coming this morning. My name is Tom Hallman. Most of you, oh, thanks. Most of you guys uh, probably recognize me already from last night, but let me tell you a little bit more about myself, which I think will help you understand why we're even talking about this topic of weakness today. So I've been with Disciple Makers for 19 years now, and my primary role is serving as Disciple Makers Director of Development, which means that I'm responsible for recruiting, selecting, and um, you know, onboarding our newest missionaries, including overseeing them all as they raise their initial financial support. So said another way, if you join Disciple Makers, I'm your first boss. I'm also a member of Disciple Makers executive leadership team and, um, uh, and the, the senior leadership team, which means I, I regularly help make personnel and policy decisions that, that impact the entire ministry. Uh, I also serve as the executive pastor at Grace Fellowship Church in State College, where I've been an elder there for about 12 years. And uh, probably best of all, 14 years ago, I married Allie, that amazing lead singer with the rainbow hair on the Disciple Makers worship team. Yep, you can, you can clap for that. And we have uh, four loud, active little boys, ages uh, 11 through four. So, on paper, I, I suppose it looks like I'm doing okay. But I'm gonna let you guys in on a little secret. I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> I, I, I mean it. Not a week goes by where I don't lean back in my office chair or collapse uh, on my couch and stare at the ceiling for a few minutes and have a minor panic attack and wonder if today is the day it's all gonna come crashing down. I second guess myself all the time. Those of you who know me have probably heard me process how little I feel like I understand. Well, why is that? Because I've, I've led Bible studies that don't go especially well. And I've, I've set up outreach events that no one attends. And I've given talks that I wish no one had attended. Thanks for coming, by the way. I'm regularly making hiring decisions for disciple makers that I agonize over for weeks. And I'm making policy decisions that I know that some people are going to hate no matter which way things go. The people at my church sometimes wonder why we're doing things this way or that way. And, and, and I realize, like, oh, you just brought up some great points. I'd not considered that. And I kind of have to go back to the drawing board and rethink everything I thought I knew. And recently, someone asked me for parenting advice. So I offered what I could, but most of the time, I'm just winging it myself, okay? Like, I, I mean, my kids haven't died yet, so I guess that's something. <laughs> but that's, that's about as far as I can, I can go. Can you guys relate to that? Do you, do you ever feel like life is just too big for you? Do you ever feel like me, that you often feel like you should be better at all this than you actually are? I imagine some of you have tried leading Bible studies or outreach events or, or really anything at all, and you're sitting there wondering, how did I get this job? Others of you have been at college for a grand total of about two months, and already you're wondering if you've chosen the right major or the right college or the right friends, and you're even wondering if you're even cut out for this whole college thing to begin with. Regardless, I assume that the reason you're here this morning at a breakout session on weakness is because you, like me, feel altogether inadequate 
for what God has called you to do. So if that's you, I have good news. You are exactly the person that God is looking for to change the world. And that's what this session is all about. If you haven't already, please turn with me in your packets. We're going to be looking at pages 42 and 43. We're going to be looking together at a passage near the beginning of the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church. And in case those names are new to you, let me give you a little bit of background, a little bit of context. So Paul was born right around 1 AD as the son of Pharisees, the strictest and holiest of the Jewish religious orders. As a young man, Paul was trained under the tutelage of the rabbi Gamaliel, who was one of the most esteemed Pharisees of the day. Yet Paul was also a Roman citizen, so he understood Greek language and culture. Basically, Paul was one seriously smart dude, well-trained, highly religious, and, and if anyone could, have, could boast of his competence and his credentials, it was Paul. Thankfully, by God's grace, Paul encountered the resurrected Jesus and became an incredible instrument of gospel witness in the early church. Most of your New Testament was written by Paul. So again, if anyone could boast of his competence and his credentials, it was Paul. Now, as part of his early missionary work, Paul helped, helped establish a church in the city of Corinth. And in those days, Corinth was a really big deal. It was a strategic and powerful commercial center uh, analogous to urban uh, environments today. Think New York City, Chicago, LA, that kind of thing. And the lifestyles included all the same kinds of things that you, you, you think of when you imagine an environment like that. So, so the Corinthians valued professionalism, profitability, well-crafted speeches, ex exquisite entertainment, a liberal sexual ethic, a high-profile celebrity culture, and the very best of the best of everything. That's Corinth. So the people of Corinth could also boast of their competence and their credentials. And so you'd expect someone with Paul's background would have fit in just fine in Corinth when he showed up there. He could have been the ancient equivalent of a megachurch pastor. But here's the thing. Upon arriving in Corinth, Paul didn't actually fit in at all. He didn't come with the same professionalism that the Corinthians were used to. In fact, he came in sounding socially unaware and, and, and pr probably even awkward. But why? It was because Paul's gospel message was not in lofty words of wisdom, but he instead focused on the message of Jesus Christ dying on a cross, which was, which was a method of execution considered so crude that it was not even mentioned in polite company. And yet that simple crude message ended up leading many to salvation, and that was the beginning of the Corinthian church. However, as is so often the case, the church struggled with blending its gospel message with its contemporary culture. They tried to have it both ways, and so Paul sent them this letter. So let's begin reading in chapter 1, beginning in verse 17 there, right at the top of page 42, to see what Paul has to say. So we're going to read through verse 25. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. 
For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul starts out here in verse 17 with a very strong and nearly blasphemous statement. Did you see it? Paul says that if he sought to share the gospel with eloquent wisdom, he'd effectively empty the cross of Christ of its power. <laughs> wow. The cross of Christ is the most powerful object the world has ever known. It's the only on object on which God himself died. And when he did, his blood that was spilled on that cross covered over the sin of every single one of God's people throughout all time, past, present, and future. The cross of Christ is the spiritual equivalent of 100,000 nuclear bombs. Yet, here Paul says that if, if he preached the gospel in words of eloquent wisdom, those bombs would be emptied of their power. Emptied. That's a major, major statement. And Paul knows it. He knows exactly how audacious that sounds, and that's why he spends the next 20 verses or so explaining himself. He begins here in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Here we see that the word of the cross, that is the gospel message, that Jesus died on the cross so that we could be forgiven of our sins, it has two opposite effects depending on the, the state of people's souls. If they're perishing, that is, if they're actively rejecting God's salvation in the cross, then the message of the cross itself appears foolish. But if they're being saved, that is, if they're actively receiving God's salvation in the cross, then the message of the cross appears both powerful and divine. So the same gospel message has two very different effects. It either looks foolish or it looks amazing. And what determines which it is? The answer is that God does. God has always operated such that those who are seeking him will find him, and those who are not seeking him will not find him. And in considering this, Paul cites there, that's Isaiah 19.14, that quote that he makes, I will, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Now, in the context of Isaiah, what, what Paul is trying to capture there, what God was telling his people is that it doesn't matter how religious or wise they think they are, God is the one who opens minds and opens hearts. So emboldened by this truth, Paul calls out the wisest people he knows in verse 20. Where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Come on, Paul says, show me your wisdom. And then he laughs at them. Has not God made foolish? the wisdom of the world? 
You, O wise man, you, O scribe, do you think you can figure out the ways of God? You think you see clearly? Well, guess what? God has made your wisdom foolish. You think you understand, but you don't, and it's pathetic. Paul then clarifies that there are two distinct kinds of wisdom. Verse 21, this is kind of a, it's a tricky verse, but, but let me read it again. For, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Let me break that down for you. Basically, here in verse 21, we have two distinct kinds of wisdom. The first kind is the wisdom of men, which, which results in the world not knowing God. That is, it's ineffective wisdom. It sounds wise, but it doesn't actually accomplish anything useful. But then the second kind of wisdom there is the wisdom of God, which results in, in saving those who believe. That's effective wisdom. It sounds foolish to the world, but it accomplishes the, the eternal salvation of souls. So those are two very different forms of wisdom with very different effects. But that's not all Paul says here. He wants to hammer this home even more. He, he says that second kind of wisdom, the wisdom of God which results in salvation, it says that in God's wisdom, it pleases God for us to look foolish as we preach. Did you catch that? It pleases God for us to look foolish as we preach. So as we live out our lives proclaiming that the cross of Christ is our only hope, we look and sound ridiculous to people, and God loves it. So, so when you reach out in your dorm, inviting dozens of people to a Bible study, and only two or one or no people show up to that, that pleases God. He smiles at that. When you share Christ in class or at work and people snicker and laugh and mock you because of how naive you sound, God loves that. It pleases God. Friends, the world looks at us and thinks us pathetic, but it's through this folly of ours that it pleases God to save those who believe. That really redefines our definition of success, doesn't it? We're tempted to think we're succeeding if our campus fellowships are bursting at the seams, like standing room only, right? If our Bible study has to split because so many people are coming to it. If our church youth group has more kids coming than the other church's youth group. And, and those all may be good things, friends. But, but honestly, anyone could make those things happen if they offer free pizza and have a feel-good message. You could be bursting at the seams. If those are our standards, then the eloquent speakers of Corinth would be counted highly successful. But Jesus? Not so much. One time he gave a difficult message and nearly everyone deserted him. He hardly looked successful in that moment, right? But listen, Paul here is telling us that success is not based on large crowds or on persuasive speeches. No. Success, in God's eyes, is completely based on just one question. Are you preaching Christ crucified? That's it. If, if, if you're not, well, then welcome to Corinth. 
This is as good as it gets. Your reward will be 15 minutes of fame and maybe a book deal. But if you are preaching Christ crucified, it will please God to reward you by making you sound foolish so that many, even in your fellowship or your Bible study or your church or your youth group, will think you completely naive. You may not get a book deal that way, but you will please God. And it's good that you do, because you're certainly not going to be pleasing anyone else. Did you notice what Paul wrote in verse 22? For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So Jews are looking for signs and wonders, and Gentiles, that's, that's everybody else, is looking for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, so no one gets what they want. That's what Paul's saying. The Jews ask, what kind of sign is a naked man hanging on a cross? And the Gentiles ask, what kind of wisdom is it for God to die? It's a stumbling block. It's folly. It doesn't make any sense at all unless God has called you. Verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. If you are called, then that naked man on the cross is the most wonderful thing you've ever seen. And if you are called, then this message of God dying for our sins is the most wonderful thing you've ever heard. And that's because, according to verse 25, the most foolish part of God, if one were to exist, is still wiser than the wisest of men. And the weakest part of God, if one were to exist, is stronger than the strongest of any man. So what does this mean for us? Two applications. Here's the first one. Relax. Your application is to relax. You and I get so worried about doing the wrong thing and looking foolish, but consider what we read in verse 18. When the cross is preached, who determines how it's received? God does, right? If they're perishing, the word of the cross sounds like folly. If they're being saved, the word of the cross is the power of God. So where do you and I fit into that equation? We don't. We don't we're, we're not even variables in the equation. When it comes to building God's kingdom, how much does your weakness factor in? How much does your messed up background matter? How much does your ability to speak well or disciple someone or plan an outreach event the answer, Paul says, is that not one of those things matters at all. The only thing that matters here is God's work of salvation. So your application must be relax. The success or failure of your Bible study does not rest in your hands. The growth of your campus fellowship is not up to you. And your outreach event depends only upon the gracious work of God. So whether two people or 200 people show up, God gets all the glory. And listen, God cares way more about every one of those things than you ever possibly could. So you and I just need to relax and talk about Christ crucified and watch God work. Here's a second application. Expect the world to think you utterly 
foolish. Expect it. Now, I've never much enjoyed looking foolish. I, I like when things are well rehearsed and planned and coordinated and all that. And I, and I want a really slick church service with, with great transitions and sweet guitar riffs. I want a really huge campus fellowship with standing room only attendance. I, I really, really want to sound awesome when I stand up front and speak, to be honest. I want to say profound, wise-sounding things that get tweeted and favorited and published in books and stuff. I do. And people would eat it up, right? Like, I'd be so popular. I'd be a minor celebrity or something. I'd, I'd, I'd tell myself I'd no longer have to feel weak and inadequate. We all want that, right? At least my assumption is that you guys are here today because, like me, you're constantly feeling inadequate. Would it be nice, just once, for everyone to approve of you? It's possible. It, it could happen. We could all be really popular until we preach Christ crucified. Up until that point, people who are perishing and those who are being saved will agree with a lot of the cool stuff we're doing. But when we bring in the stumbling block and foolishness of Jesus hanging on a cross, there's going to be an immediate divide. And a lot of people are going to stop listening. And a lot of people are going to leave your church and your fellowship and even your worship band. You won't even have sweet guitar riffs anymore. And you'll be thought utterly foolish. And you'll be called a bigot and close-minded and naive. And you will be an instrument of salvation to those who believe. And God will be pleased to use you to change the world. Now, before we move on, let me clarify one important point so that you guys don't mishear what I'm saying. I'm not saying that you can be a jerk and still rejoice in being called foolish. That, that doesn't please God. But I, I am saying that if you are preaching Christ crucified in humility and in weakness, that it's okay if you look foolish. God set it up that way, and it, and it pleases him to do so. Okay, so we've seen that God delights in using our foolishness, but that's not all he does. Let's continue on in our text and look at the second point in your outline. Uh, we're starting at verse, verse uh, 126 here. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So, back in verse 24, we saw that Christ was the power and wisdom of God to those who were called, right? So here, Paul now asks his audience, his fellow believers, to reflect on their calling. So, despite the fancy-schmancy, put-together look of the contemporary Corinthian church, Paul here is seeing right through it. He's not fooled. He was there, after all, when it formed. So he knows that not many were wise or powerful or from these prominent, influential families. 
They'd forgotten who they were. They'd forgotten that God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong and the, and the foolish things in the world to shame the wise. That God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Friends, Paul here is reminding the Corinthian church who they are and who God is. And so listen, who, did you catch this? Who is the active party in these verses? It's God. God chose. God chose. God chose. This whole Christianity thing is completely in the hands of God. Not in our hands, his. He's the one running the show. He alone is the writer, the director, the producer, and the marketer. He alone does the casting. He alone runs the lights. He opens the curtain, and he alone takes the final bow. It's altogether his sovereign choice according to his perfect purposes for his all-encompassing glory. And why does this altogether sovereign God, or I'm sorry, who does this altogether sovereign God choose? Not who the Corinthians would, and not who we would. No, we in the Corinthians, man, we want the big names, right? We, we like Matt Papa at our, at our events. We want the celebrities. We want the highest conceivable quality. We want wisdom and strength and excellence. But God chose the foolish things in the world. God chooses the weak things in the world. God chooses the low and despised things in the world. In fact, Paul says that God chooses things that are not. That is, God looks around at the qualities that the world values, and if he finds someone in whom none of those qualities exist, that's his man. That's his woman. That's the person who's going to get the star role. And that sounds kind of crazy, doesn't it? Why would he do that? Well, here's why. Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. No one else gets to share in the glory. Because if the lead role is a nobody, and yet the show is wildly successful, who gets the credit? God does. God does. God does. Now, remember, friends, that, that Paul is not speaking abstractly here. He's speaking personally. He, he began verse 26 by saying to consider your calling, brothers. He's speaking to the Corinthians. They are the foolish ones. They are the weak ones. They are the low and despised of this world. And friends, he's also talking about us. If you were a Christian here today, then you were included with the Corinthians here. You and I are the foolish ones. You and I are the weak ones. You and I are the low and despised of this world. And yet in God's sovereign power, we are nevertheless wildly successful in accomplishing his glorious purposes. Do you see? God's purpose in our foolishness is to shame the wise in this world. And God's purposes in our weakness is to shame the strong in this world. God's purpose in our lowliness and our being despised and our, and our notness is to bring to nothing everything that this world considers praiseworthy. And, and, and we get not only success, but in his purposes, because of God, this is verse 30, because of God, you and I are in Christ Jesus. That's Paul's way of saying we are saved. We are, we are Christ's. Jesus Christ became to us wisdom from God. Jesus Christ became to us righteousness from God. Jesus Christ became to us sanctification from God. And Jesus Christ became to us redemption from God. This is our sovereign God 
choosing us, justifying us, transforming us, and claiming us as his very own. And all of that comes about in our weakness. So that, as verse 31 says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Our boast, friends, our claim to fame is in God's sovereign choice. And only in God's choice. It's not about what we've done or what we can do. It's only about him. So what does that mean for us, my weak friends? Two applications. First, it means that if your weakness bothers you, you're looking at it all wrong. If your weakness bothers you, you're looking at it all wrong. We tend to think that our weaknesses disqualify us from God's service. But friends, our weakness doesn't disqualify us. Our weakness is the very thing that qualifies us in the first place. So when we find ourselves hating our weakness, we're simply thinking about it the wrong way. If only I could preach like that guy, then God could use me. If only I could disciple like her or lead worship like him, then God could use me. If only I were more organized or more diligent or smarter or faster or better in whatever way. If only I didn't have this physical limitation or this mental handicap or this emotional struggle or that family background. If only I didn't struggle with this or that or get hung up by this or that, then God could use me. But if those are the things we believe, friends, then our gospel message gets all messed up. Because we're preaching a gospel of worldly success rather than a gospel of a crucified Savior. And God gets no glory from that. But what if in our inability to preach or to disciple or to lead worship, in our disorganization, in our slowness, in our limitations, and in all of our struggles, what if because of those things, the people that we're ministering to don't remember us very well, but they do remember Jesus Christ and him crucified? What if we're forgettable, but Jesus is unforgettable? What if we embraced our weakness so that others would embrace the cross of Christ? Would our weaknesses still bother us if we think like that? Here's one more application. Give more than you have to give. Give more than you have to give. That's the definition of weakness, isn't it? Giving beyond your ability. Yet I often hear from others, and indeed it, this screams out in my own heart, that, that I ought not to take on more than I can. I have limitations. I can only do so much and give so much. And, and to some extent, of course, that's true, right? Like, like we're finite creatures. We're, we're certainly, we certainly can't take every opportunity out there. And so I, I'm, I'm not suggesting that we just do more. But I am suggesting that we do what we think we can't. See, I think we too often consider our abilities and then let them determine our limits. So rather than exposing our inabilities and weaknesses, we hide safely behind what we know we're able to do. So for example, 
I think I do an okay job at discipling people. I, I'm, I'm, I can do that all right, but I'm not nearly so good at outreach. And, and so for years, I filled my schedule with discipling students and staff, but left very little time either on campus or in my neighborhood to reach people. And so on one level, it looked like great faithfulness. Look at Tom, he's discipling all these people. And I liked that. But, but really, a lot of it was set up because in all my, my social awkwardness and my, my inability, it was just on full display whenever I tried inviting non-Christians to church or to the campus fellowship or a Bible study or whatever. Now, my wife, Allie, she's great at this. She's a natural. She makes it look so easy, but it's, it, that's not me. So for the past couple of years, I've been purposefully praying and asking God to give me opportunities. And then when I saw them, I went for it. Not because I felt competent to do so, but because I didn't. And so sometimes that meant pausing a a discipleship I was having over lunch and walking up to someone sitting alone in the cafeteria, introducing myself and having a five or 10 minute conversation. Sometimes I shared the gospel. Sometimes I invited them to check out the Disciple Makers Fellowship. Sometimes I got their number to invite them to something later. And every time, it was awkward. And every time, I felt scared. And and it wasn't pretty, and it wasn't eloquent, and it wasn't within my abilities. It was more than I had to give, and God used it. What about you? Are there things in your life that God has called you to do, yet you've set some kind of limit on it because it goes beyond your natural abilities? Perhaps you should start a Bible study or invite your friends to your fellowship group or start discipling someone or share Christ with your parents or something else. Embrace those opportunities, friends. Let your weakness shine forth. Yes, that's hard. Yes, it will hurt. But might not God use even you in your weakness to change the world? I want to share with you guys one of my absolute favorite quotes. It's by Al Mohler, president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And he captures so well this very idea we've been talking about. Let me read this for you. We are called to ministry not because of who we are, any more than we were called to salvation because of who we are. We are called in spite of who we are. We alone understand that we are the least qualified persons imaginable for the job that has been entrusted to us. It is not about us. It is about God. He continues, We are the people of all the earth who must understand that our resumes mean virtually nothing. There is There there really is no aptitude in us that is our own. There is no qualification that is our earning. The Lord God, for his good reasons in his sovereignty, chooses those who will be the preachers and teachers of his word and the vessels of his, his gospel, and he equips the incompetent. Listen, the ministry is going to cost us something. The ministry is going to cost us more than we have to give, It is going to cost us our lives if we understand what it is all about. It is going to cost us everything we are, and there's not going to be anything left of us at the end except the glory of God. And that's the point. 
when you boast in God's sovereign choice rather than in your small abilities, he will surely use you to do surpassingly more than all you ask or imagine. So we've seen that God delights in using our foolishness. And, and, and that God chooses the unqualified so that we boast only in him. Now, in these last few verses, we'll see that, as a result, we should put our hope in God's power rather than our own. So let's conclude with these last few verses here. Paul writing, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul gets personal now, and he uses himself as a case study. Verse 1 tells us that Paul didn't come sounding like the professional orators of Corinth. Rather, he tells us he, he decided to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. What does that mean? What does Paul mean by that? He decided to know nothing? It means that Paul could have decided that he knew something other than Jesus crucified, Christ crucified. Paul was a very smart man. He could have gone toe-to-toe with these Corinthian orators. They, they came in with fine-sounding, lofty speech and ample reserves of worldly wisdom. That was their specialty. They'd draw crowds. Everyone would speak well of them. How, how well they understood the times, how well they found a socially pleasing balance between Christianity and modern uh, Corinthian culture, right? They could preach a solid message without having to bring in that abrasive nonsense about the crucifixion. But not Paul. He took an altogether different strategy. Instead of avoiding the cross in his message, he made that his only message. No matter the text, no matter the topic, no matter the audience, no matter the context, Paul preached Jesus Christ and him crucified. And as we've already seen, this would have made him look very foolish to those large crowds there who were perishing. But to those who were being saved, Christ crucified was exactly what their dry souls were thirsting for. Now, despite Paul's solid resolve to preach Christ crucified, he tells us in verse 3 that he was nevertheless weak and fearful and trembling. So he's not, he's not talking about butterflies in his stomach before public speaking. This was a physical manifestation of a terrified soul. So why was Paul so afraid? I don't know. I don't know. Honestly, it doesn't, it doesn't tell us. But, but chances are, you came to this session today because I don't have to tell you why you might be really scared of stuff. You already know. You're already familiar why someone would feel weak and afraid. And there are as many reasons as why someone would feel that way as there are people in this room. So whatever the reasons were for it, Paul was really scared. And what was the result? Did, did, did his fear shame God? Did his weakness render him ineffective? Were his simpleton claims about a crucified Savior powerless? No. No. Paul says that it was rather a demonstration of the spirit and of power. Paul's weakness and trembling cut a channel right through the wisdom of this world into the heart of, hearts of Paul's hearers. And the Holy Spirit of God rushed in with spectacular, overwhelming power. To what end? How is that power used? 
Paul, Paul actually told us this back in, in chapter 1, verse 18, the second verse there on your, uh, in your handout. He says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but, but, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is salvation power that Paul is talking about here, friends. By preaching Christ crucified and then getting out of the way, Paul's weak frame gave way to the limitless power of God Almighty for the purposes of saving his people. And why does God do it that way? Here's what chapter 2, verse 5 says, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Consider those two options, friends, the wisdom of men and the power of God. Which of those two things are more reliable? Which is unlimited? Which can change men's hearts? Which will you put your faith in? This, my friends, is why Paul said way back in verse 17 of chapter 1 there, that if he sought to share the gospel with eloquent wisdom, he'd effectively empty the cross of Christ of its power. That's why he said that nearly blasphemous thing. He's justified his case now. It's because if you miss the cross, then you miss our foolishness, you miss our weakness, you miss our fear and trembling, and you miss the power of God. So how do we apply this? Let me give you guys one final application. Don't let your weakness, fear, and trembling hold you back. Don't let your weakness, fear, and trembling hold you back. I remember sitting where you guys are right now, many years ago as a student, thinking that Disciple Maker's staff were truly amazing. They knew their Bibles better than I ever would. They gushed wisdom. They, they, they discipled people with utter confidence and clarity. They probably wrote talks in their sleep. So let me go ahead and pull back the curtain for you. Becoming a campus missionary doesn't make you suddenly strong. Rather, you become more aware of your weakness than you ever were before. If you're a Disciple Maker staff in this room right now, would you please raise your hand? And hold it up for a second. Okay, so look around. If you, staff, feel like you know what you're doing most of the time, put your hands back up. <laughs> Guys, you're staff workers. Your staff workers are regularly expected to do things that no one has ever trained them to do. Want to guess how many of our staff went to school for ministry? Maybe one or two? Maybe? We're mostly history majors and physics majors and music majors. I was a computer science major. I never, ever, ever wanted to stand up front and give main session talks or lead breakout sessions. All I ever wanted to do was write computer code. And when, and when, I, when I became a Christian, I just wanted to write computer code for Jesus. <laughs> I kind of know how to do that. But most of this, not so much. And so then we're back to where we started today. Most of the time, I still feel like I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing. Last night, I got up in front of you all, and this morning, I'm here up in front of you all, and I'm just kind of standing up here and, and hoping that some small part of this encouraged you to love Jesus more. And when, when I get back to normal, normal life next week, you know what? 
I'm going to be doing a bunch more stuff that I don't feel qualified to do. I'm going to feel weak, I'm going to feel fearful, I'm definitely going to be trembling, and you know what? I'm going to do it anyway. My weak and fearful friends, will you join me in doing the same wherever you are? Because we're exactly the people Christ is looking for. We are the ones he's using to change the world. Please pray with me. God, I, I imagine I can speak here representing many of us in this room. I just feel so inadequate. I don't know what I'm doing, Lord. I don't know how I ended up in the places where I am. It's clearly not anything within me except for your spirit working powerfully. Lord, our lives here are a demonstration of the spirit's power. God, don't let our weaknesses, which you gave us to humble us and to show off, don't let that keep us from serving you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. God, would you use the people in this room to be heroes in your kingdom? Not because of who they are, but because of who you are and what you're doing. Use us, Lord. Use us weak people to change the world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.